This is State of Water. This is State of Water. This is State of Water. State of Water coming at you right now. State of Water, a podcast focusing on clean water issues and their relationship to policy, equity, community, and climate. Featuring captivating interviews with Michiganders from many walks of life, State of Water is the official podcast of the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan, a program of the nonprofit organization Title Track. Hey, this is Jenny from Title Track. If you resonate with what you're about to hear, put those feelings into action. Take the first step toward getting involved by going to titletrackmichigan.org slash contact to sign up for our mailing list. Welcome back, folks. Thanks for digging into this work with us. Sinclair is an independent videographer specializing in climate change and renewable energy solutions. His YouTube series, Climate Denial Crock of the Week, and the blog of the same name, as well as his collaboration with Yale Climate Connections called This Is Not Cool, have all received millions of views. These series are used in higher education settings around the planet and have become trusted resources for scientists, educators, students, policymakers, and citizens. Peter is a winner of the Friend of the Planet Award from the National Center of Science Education. As media director of the Dark Snow Project, a crowdfunded international science and communication initiative, he continues to travel with and interview leading scientists in all fields related to climate change. Peter lives in Midland, Michigan with his wife Sandra where he works out of his home. It's been almost a month since mid-Michigan was hit with catastrophic flooding that washed away and damaged homes, wiped out an entire lake, and displaced countless residents. On Tuesday, May 19th, the Edenville Dam collapsed, and shortly after, water flooded over the top of the Sanford Dam following extreme heavy rains. The dams, both based in Midland County, sent rushing water over the Titabawassee and Saginaw rivers. Hello, Peter. Yeah. Hey, it's Seth. Hey, what's going on, man? I'm doing well, all things considered. How are you? I am, uh, we're, we're, we're good. We're definitely among the lucky ones. There's a huge impact on uh, property values in areas of the town that have been affected that's i mean i thought of you i've thought of you a lot lately peter um i thought of you immediately when the news came in midland has flooded this is your town um you have been for so long um 
on the front lines of, of climate change research, understanding the science, translating the reality of the situation we're in. You know, you've worked with Yale University, you've gone around and given talks. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like in Midland now and the connection you see between the extreme flooding and, and climate change? Well, uh, you know, the waters are receding. There's a, a number of neighborhoods that have been severely impacted. Uh, it's really gut-wrenching to, to have... Uh, I took a walk around uh, Sanford, which is right below the, the, one of the dams that overtopped, and I rode up to uh, Wixom Lake, which was completely drained mm-hmm. after the Eatonville Dam went. And it's just, it's a real kick in the gut Mm-hmm. because uh, for those of us that live here, this is the geography of your mind, of your memory, you know. And uh, mm. these, are, these are the places where we remember going to keggers in high school. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's where you went when you were a child to go swimming, and they're not there anymore. And it's going to be a long time before some kind of uh, solution is in place. And I don't know what the solution is because you've got two dams here which are not that different from hundreds if not thousands of other dams around the midwest these were privately run and i don't know enough about the history to say how they were built i I got to assume there was some kind of uh, governmental funding in originally building them but at any rate, they've been privately owned. So do the taxpayers come in and restore them and then keep them in the hands of these private companies that have been resistant to maintaining them? Mm-hmm. Or do the taxpayers say, no, we're just going to take these over and we'll run them and we'll put money into it and restore them. But then who, who is that governing agency? Or do utilities run them? Or do you say, no, we're not going to rebuild them? You know, because we know a whole lot more about hydrology than we did in 1925 when these things were built. Is rebuilding the dam the best thing for flood control? Or should we allow these rivers to run mm-hmm. and create, you know, some kind of wetland? buffer zone or something that will provide the flood control or do taxpayers subsidize the rebuilding of the dam so as to restore the communities and the property values for the lake owners who have lost you know tremendous value mm-hmm. you know these are these are economic and moral dilemmas yeah and then you and these two dams we're part of a four dam system on the Titabwassee River, mm-hmm. the Titabwassee watershed. There's still two more dams, one of which, Smallwood Dam, almost collapsed. It partially overtopped during the storm. Mm. So, what happens to those? Do we have to wait for an election and hope that there will be some legislative action? Part of the tragedy of the Trump administration is that uh, this was something that was very much a part of the Democratic administration's plan is to do something about infrastructure. And uh, dams in particular were going to be addressed, and that did not get done. And for some reason, we've, over the last 
40 years just prioritized pushing money to the top 1% uh, rather than taking care of, of uh, America's infrastructure. And most tragically, we've elected to spend trillions of dollars on wars to solidify our access to oil resources instead of spending that money to get ourselves off of fossil fuels and rebuild things like infrastructure and schools and healthcare here in, in America. And I think the degradation of our infrastructure and our systems is a big part of the frustration that people feel that led to the election of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. So we've got just an enormous <clears throat> conundrum here of getting people to understand where their best interests lie. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we've got a pandemic going. So everything is just that much harder. Mm-hmm. So in terms of our dependence on fossil fuels and our transition to renewables, you know, this is the State of Water podcast and some of the themes that we're working with are the, the connections between water and, and climate and equity and community. And so, you know, we recognize that um, dirty energy creates dirty water and clean energy supports clean water. Can you share with our listeners some information about where we're at right now, especially here in Michigan and in, in the Midwest, in our transition to renewables and what that has meant to communities, particularly with wind? Sure. I've been working uh, quite a lot with uh, communities and uh, developers of wind and solar projects, mostly wind, over the last uh, three years or so. And uh, I was kind of pushed to do that i was doing all this work on climate i knew i knew that there were obviously implications that i should be doing something to support uh renewable energy and i also knew that there were uh fossil fuel organized pushback campaigns being run in in michigan and elsewhere in the midwest to block the deployment of wind and now solar energy And I chose to kind of just hope somebody else was taking care of that until I went to a meeting right here in Midland County, Ingersoll Township, about three years ago, and I saw the anti-wind circus on full display. And it's it's ugly, you know. It's really ugly. It's uh, very reminiscent of... uh, what we've seen more recently with the uh, protesters against Governor Whitmer in Lansing. You know, not so much people showing up with guns, but definitely people showing up with an ugly attitude and an intimidation uh, agenda. And what the fossil fuel folks, and, and I say that very advisedly because the leaders of this movement are coordinated through fossil fuel funded lobbying firms in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. So this is a, this is a national uh, agenda. And they've been very strategic in that if we're going to cite meaningful amounts of renewable energy, a lot of it is going to be in rural areas. That means that rural counties and particularly townships are the unit of government that has to permit these things and draw up the ordinances for them. And if you show up at a town with one of these sleepy township meetings, you know, they're used to having nobody show up and then you show up with 10 or 15 angry people you know, it makes a huge impression. Mm -hmm. 
And these kind of, I call them evil flash mobs, uh, are easy to organize when you've got a, a cadre of people who have been primed by Fox News and talk radio and conspiracy stuff online to think that renewable energy is some kind of agenda to take over by the globalists or whatever it might be, you know. So they come out and they uh, and they came out here and they were actually pretty successful in intimidating uh, at least that that board. And I realized that I had to get I had to get involved at that point. Mm-hmm. So what I've been doing is going around to we we have a marvelous advantage here in, in Mid Michigan because we've got some of the first and largest wind developments. Uh, what I would call contemporary or modern wind developments here in Gratiot County. And they've been there now for most of a decade. And so you can go around and talk to some of the local officials and see how those communities have done, you know, how, what is the, what is the impact? And it's resoundingly positive. The benefits to the schools, to the roads, to fire rescue, and uh, sheriff patrols, uh, senior services, libraries, and as far as downside, it turns out that all the stories, the horror stories that they were hearing on Facebook or from these uh, carpetbaggers who would come through, turned out to be nonsense, you know. And they're just, people are living alongside these turbines and, and benefiting from them and essentially ignoring them. And that word is getting out. So it's really significant that to the northwest south and east of Gratiot County, those original developments, you have new, brand new uh, wind projects that have just opened up in the last year and and are going to be opening up over the next couple years because those communities have been looking over the road for the last, you know, just looking across the field uh, for the last 10 years and talking to their neighbors and, and uh, recognizing that wow, that's something we could really use here because anybody that's been out in rural Michigan or the rural Midwest knows that these are communities and economies that have been completely hollowed out mm-hmm. over the last 30 years by the loss of manufacturing, a lot of times the loss of the jobs that were really keeping the, the households solvent. And at the same time, the agricultural markets and, and uh the economy there has been increasingly difficult and challenging so that the the rate of bankruptcies in the upper midwest not for farms is now the highest that it's been since the great recession and maybe probably now even higher but a farmer that can get a couple of wind turbines on his land then has drought proof recession proof income that he can budget and plan on for 20, 25 years in the future. And uh, we have surveys that show that uh, people that are able to, that are taking advantage of this, are far more likely to have a succession plan for their farm. They're far more likely to have somebody, usually in the family, that's going to continue to work that land as our aging cadre of farmers, you know, kind of just age out of being able to, to handle it. 
themselves. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, people from Gratiot County tell me that they feel they're much less vulnerable to things like uh, sprawl development, you know, because if you keep the families, you keep the stewards on the land, mm-hmm. then you're, you're not going to have, you know, predatory developers come in offering people money and then slicing up these communities into sprawled out developments, which I think we all know is not only ugly, but I mean, all of the things that you want to protect, like water, like the beauty of the agricultural environment, like the wildlife, these are all going to be destroyed by sprawl. You know, just about all of the natural uh, communities that we want to protect, birds, insects, you know, wildlife, they're probably the greatest threat to all of those communities is uncontrolled sprawl type development and renewable energy is is a huge bulwark against that you know it it revitalizes these communities and now we've got solar you know for for a decade wind was the big story now solar is becoming uh is going to be huge in michigan and across the upper midwest there are dozens of proposed solar developments of pretty significant size. And um, we're seeing a few uh, right here locally. Uh, Shiawassee County is going to get a very large solar development. And I've done in some meetings in other counties uh, looking at this. And we're seeing the same people, the same fossil fuel organized people come out with some of the same arguments and the same tactics, the same playbook to stop solar development, So, uh, which is completely predictable. And I'll say that we're, we're in a very interesting position in Michigan compared to where we were just five years ago because we've got two very large utilities that are responsible for most of the electrical generation in the state, consumers, energy, and uh, DTE. And just five years ago, I remember having conversations with very well-informed people who knew the industry very well, who were just kind of despairing about how backwards these utilities were and still very much dependent on coal and uh, thinking in terms of, of fossil fuels. And then suddenly, over the last three or four years, that has flipped. Mm-hmm. And we now have at least in the in the, the projections that, that they both have going forward, they're looking at decarbonizing as a goal. And they're taking the steps that they need to take. And it's and and their projections are are steadily becoming more aggressive in terms of what they think they can do because the technology is changing so rapidly and improving so rapidly and costs are dropping mm-hmm. so dramatically. Mm-hmm. So, for for example, um, I think both of the big utilities in about 2017 made a goal to cut their carbon emissions by 80% by 2050, mid-century. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which was a big deal. And my first reaction to it was, okay, that's not enough. It's not enough, but it's good. You know, we'll take it. And my... I think I told a number of people then, watch this space, 
because the the technology is moving so fast that I bet that as they continue to do the math, they're going to be, get more aggressive with those goals. And indeed, just two years later, mm. mm-hmm. all, uh, at the same time, both the, the utilities almost simultaneously said, "You know what? Uh, we're we're looking at this and, and updating our." our projections here and we think we can do it even faster so then they said yeah 80 percent carbon reduction by 2040 and now okay now you're starting to get into the ballpark of the scale of change that we're gonna need mm-hmm. still not quite good enough but you're moving in a good direction there we like that you know mm-hmm. but what citizens have to do is help open the way for these big players to to deploy and we've got to deploy on large scale with you know the big turbine farms and the big solar farms we've also got to deploy on a more modest scale and those economics are improving too but we need to you know talk to our our representatives about um improving the regulatory policies in in the state of Michigan to make it even more attractive for small businesses, schools, hospitals, anybody that's got a large parking lot, say, to have a solar component, you know, to what they're doing and to begin to Mm self-generate. And the major utilities uh, operate within the framework that we set for them as citizens and as voters and uh, through our, through our laws and our legislation so they will respond you know but we have to we have to look at other states who where uh, this process is happening even faster mm-hmm. and uh maybe learn some lessons yeah absolutely thank you peter and so i i, I want to bring this up and i'm sure lots of people have been bringing this up to you i know a lot have been bringing it up to me but this movie planet of the humans came out right oh my god yeah you know it's it's sad how rare it is to have a, a movie that millions of people are going to see deal directly with the environment and so much of the data in this movie is so old and and it's just totally not up to speed i was kind of horrified when i watched it and then really disappointed to have to engage with folks who are who, who've had the whole conversation just framed for them in a way that's just false yeah, and uh, I'm wondering what what your life has been like since that movie came out, and just how you have helped bring people up to speed, and and um, you know what you have to say, I guess, about the fact that this movie has come out here in 2020, and and where the information actually belongs. Yeah, it's it's really it's it would be funny if it weren't so sad. Yeah. Uh, I, I you know I forced myself to watch. The movie and I, I was literally 45 seconds in and I was just going are you kidding me mm-hmm. I think I was using stronger language than that I was just yeah. are you effing kidding me you know because it's just uh, ironically it's exactly the same kind of nonsense that you hear from uh, the, the mouthpieces of the fossil fuel industry yeah and it's it's just the irony is is unbelievable, and I started hearing about this from I don't know a year ago okay. uh, when the movie was shown at one of the film festivals or something, and 
And for not only the fossil fuel industry, but the right-wing, regressive, white supremacist media just loves this movie. They love this movie. Because not only uh, the, the message of the movie is, we're doomed, there's nothing you can do about it. And the problem is all those brown skinned people are having too many dates. That's basically what they leave you with and no, and no solution. Mm. You know, I, I, I knew Michael Moore before he was Michael Moore, so to speak. You know, I mean, I knew him before he was famous and, uh, the reason that I know him is because uh, I basically grew up in a household that was extremely active mm-hmm. and dealing with uh, the proposed sighting of uh, large dual unit nuclear reactors right here within the city limits on the floodplain uh, here in Midland. Mm-hmm. And my parents, my mother in particular, who had mm-hmm. a, a science communication background, showed me how you begin to ask questions and how you take extreme care to to be accurate and to be uh, science-based and fact-based in raising questions about things like this. Just, you know, for instance, one of the early questions that was raised was, if you're going to build something this close to a popul- uh, nuclear facility, this close to a population center, the most important safety system that you have is your emergency core cooling, which keeps the planet, the, the plant supposedly from melting down. And uh, we knew early, early on, I was a teenager in the early 70s, and we knew that the, the testing for that particular safety system had failed. And yet there was this whole generation of nuclear plants that were being built with that questionable system designed into them. And so when people started raising this question, it, it spooked some investors. It caused some projects to be delayed while they figured out a, some kind of a patch for the, the problem. And uh, citizens who had raised the questions got blamed for the delays. But what happened a few years later was that Three Mile Island melted down, of course. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the plants that were to be cited here were basically genetic twins of Three Mile Island. So they had to be uh, completely uh, almost torn out and re- rebuilt, which led to such massive cost increases that they were eventually abandoned. Mm-hmm. Uh, a flurry of lawsuits and recriminations and all kinds of stuff that went on. But what, what's ironic is that... Uh, at that time, Michael Moore, uh, after the Three Mile Island event, saw the opportunity to uh, put himself at the forefront of uh, some of the dem- demonstrations that resulted after that and uh, use that as kind of a springboard to, uh, to make himself the center of attention in a way that was really not helpful for the folks who'd been here doing hard work on the ground and, and getting the the blowback and the death threats and the uh, recrimination and all that went along with that. So that was my first kind of introduction to Michael Moore. And I, my take is, you know, he hasn't changed much. Mm. But to get back to the movie, okay, here's the deal. 
from the standpoint, my standpoint as a communicator, I don't think the movie is having very much impact. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't have a whole lot of followers in the rural areas, and the folks there uh, who, in, in large majorities, want to see renewable clean energy development, they're not watching Michael Moore movies. They want to know, how's it going to help our schools? How's it going to help our roads? How's it going to get our economies off, off the backs? You know, especially in the light of this pandemic depression. And what I see in sort of the long term is that uh, uh, renewable energy is just continues to pick up steam as it has for the last 25 years. And I think that uh, if anything, this reset that the pandemic is causing us all to have is potentially an opportunity, you know, because a lot of communities are going to come out of this and say, geez, you know, what can we do to to jumpstart things around here? And we've got a whole lot of these renewable energy projects that are shovel-ready, good to go right now. And it's just a matter of permitting them and, and getting out of the way mm-hmm. so that we can, you know, you know, pump some seriously needed economic activity into these desperately uh, impacted areas and uh, jumpstart some of these uh, economies and get some of these schools open back up and get uh, get some roads repaired and, 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 and you know, assure some some families that they got a, a steady income going forward. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, so I think that's the message that people are hearing. It's if, if I was, if I was an anti anti clean energy person and, and standing in the way of a, of a shovel ready project like that and, and with nothing to offer except no, you know, no, no alternative. Mm-hmm you know, nothing, nothing tangible, just some misinformation and some conspiracy theories and ideology and a lot of anger, you know, that's all they're offering. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I, you know, uh, I, I think the planet of the humans movie is, you know, it's made a certain amount of, uh, stir and, and, uh, in some circles, but not really the circles where it would make much difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I frankly am quite sure just as someone that's been active on YouTube for, for quite a while that most of the traffic that movie is getting is coming from uh, the right wing media machine mm-hmm. you know from Breitbart and Fox News and, and uh, you know the uh, sort of anti-environment, anti-clean energy, white supremacist, hard right messaging machine seems to be really pushing a lot of the interest in that film. And, and, and those audiences, in my experience, tend to move heavily in herds. So uh, I think that's where, uh, ironically, Michael Moore is getting most of his audience these days. Mm. Sad, eh? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm close personal friends with Bill McKibben, and, and I've had my own experiences with the filmmaker Jeff Gibbs that have not been entirely savory. So yeah. it's definitely 
some um, some troubling things in there on a personal level, but then on a larger level, it's just like, wow, this is really old data about renewable energy, and it, a lot of it is just bad data to begin with. Well, um, just to just to give an example, there's a, a, a scene in the movie of uh, uh, solar energy. Okay, so they here's how they treat solar energy. He's got 15 year old, literally 15 year old footage of some hippies with a rock concert in Vermont. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they tried to set up some solar panels and then it rained and so it didn't work very well. And so therefore solar energy doesn't work because yeah. the hippies couldn't make it work on a rainy day, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's so ludicrous, it's so preposterous, you know? And yet it is exactly the, the cartoon caricature that you would find uh, on an extreme right-wing uh, blog or website, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and it's... Uh, last time I looked, uh, Tesla Motors, which is, you know, probably the, the most emblematic... Uh, company in the world as far as renewable energy, solar energy, energy storage, and all things of this technology has a higher market capitalization than Ford and General Motors combined. Mm. <laughs> so these aren't, this is, this is where the smart money is going, you know. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is not some hippies weekend hobby. <laughs> right right so so and i'm sure you saw that as well too i mean yeah it's just it's just it's preposterous it is it's so preposterous you know <laughs> uh so it's like i say it would be it would be just laughable if we didn't have you know a, a whole lot of people who are just not well informed yeah but I yeah. think, you know, the the shift is already happening, as you said, and, and DTE and consumers are not going to watch that movie and go back to fossil fuels. And, you know, the, exactly. the train is on the tracks you know, here. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, um, Michigan's actually getting national attention because of some of the, uh, the proposals that we have. Uh, uh, the CEO of... of Consumers Energy, I guess they call themselves CNS now. Patty Poppy uh, was had a huge spread in the Wall Street Journal about mm. three months ago mm. because of the uh, forward-looking nature of their their program, which is to deploy wind and a lot of solar and basically decarbonize. You know, they are the tenth largest uh, utility, I think. Last time I looked, the 10th largest in the, in the country. And let me just, since it pops into my mind, let me just address another uh, issue that a lot of people might not understand. One of the herrings or canards that you see in movies like Michael Moore's movie and also every place else where people are talking down renewable energy is, what do you do when the sun goes down or the wind stops blowing? Right? You've heard that? Yep. And uh, what people don't realize is that Michigan is probably one of the, I would say we are a global leader in our potential for energy storage here. And we mm. actually have been for 40 years. 
Uh, ironically, when we were building that first uh, tranche of nuclear plants back in the 70s, the engineers were also thinking in terms of how to store excess energy from those nuclear plants, which can't be turned off, say, at Sunday morning at 3 a.m. when there's no demand for electricity. So if you have to keep these things running, what do you do with all that extra power? Mm-hmm. And uh, so what their answer was, was to build one of the world's largest batteries. And that is the Ludington Pump Storage Power Plant on Lake Michigan. Yes. Which is an artificial lake, good-sized artificial lake on a bluff over the lake, over Lake Michigan. And very simple concept, Sunday morning, 3 a.m., if you've got your nuclear plant running or if you have wind blowing and a whole lot of wind turbines generating power, you don't have to shut them down. You can use that power to pump the water out of Lake Michigan up into your artificial lake and hold it there. So that three days later, say you have a heat wave, everybody turns on their air conditioning, you need some extra power. Open up the floodgates, water goes down, generates power, just like a dam. And it's, and I say just like a dam, this thing is on the same scale as like the Hoover Dam. That's how much power it generates. And uh, is 75% efficient, 80% efficient, which is astounding, mm. you know. It's a world-class facility, and it means that here in Michigan, we have the opportunities to be the global leader in decarbonizing. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'll, I'll expand even more. I was up, uh, I was very honored to be invited up to speak over the winter at Michigan Tech University, which you may know is one of the country's most highly regarded uh, engineering and science uh, institutions. Mm-hmm. And I spoke to several experts up there who are looking at uh, the thousands of abandoned iron and copper mines mm-hmm. throughout the UP, but also Wisconsin, Minnesota, and of course, many other regions of the country. You have a lot of mine shafts. And the idea being that these shafts are basically just sitting there now, they're kind of filling with water. And uh, to some degree, they're an environmental uh, liability because they, uh, uh, the water leaks out and it has toxic metals in it and this and that. Their idea is to uh, do some engineering on these and convert them into uh, energy storage devices where the upper levels of the mine would be the place where you would store water during times of uh, excess or cheap electricity and then... Uh, in times of need, you simply open up a, a door and water flows down, goes through the turbine, you're generating power. So hmm. no, no new technology needed. And here's the thing. All of these mines are, they're completely below ground, but they're already permanent. Okay. So they have roads, in some cases, rail, rail service, but in every case, transmission lines already running into them Mm. you don't have to permit anything which is the big problem you have Mm. with any kind of development like this you don't have to disturb the surface at all you know all of the work takes place under the ground Mm -hmm. 
And then you have potentially hundreds, if not thousands, of these very substantial batteries that could, if we pair them, say, with offshore wind turbines in a very windy area of Lake Superior that is not far away, then you have the potential for dozens of gigawatts, if not hundreds of gigawatts, of clean electrical power that you can store and then transmit to the entire industrial Midwest. Wow, that's fascinating. Wow is right, you know. <laughs> and and these, these people who have been working on this are brilliant. And mm. they're already having some conversations with some pretty big players. They wouldn't tell me who. Mm-hmm. Just to give you an example, uh, right there above the university uh, in uh, Hancock, Michigan, right across the river from Houghton, is the Quincy Mine. It's it's a mm-hmm. tourist attraction now, but it was an enormous uh, copper mine, I believe, uh, back in the day. And just that one mine, they did some back-of-the-envelope figuring for that one mine. Mm-hmm. And it would be... Uh, Essentially, to put it in terms we can kind of all understand, be enough to run the city of Grand Rapids for about 10 hours. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Just the one mine. Mm. So, you know, uh, as Pogo said, we is confronted with insurmountable opportunities, you know. <laughs> uh, it's it, the, the potential for what we, what we can do is so enormous that uh, I think uh, for many people, you might almost find it hard to believe. It's definitely not doom and gloom, you know. Uh, The story could be, if we want it to be, that we emerge into a low-carbon era that is more equitable, more prosperous, and... uh, has less need for the kind of uh, resource wars and and uh, boom and bust cycles that we've we've come to know in the fossil fuel era, and uh, it's there if we want it. Mm-hmm. You know, the technology exists. Mm. Wow! Thank you, Peter. So I have a couple more questions for you. Um, sure. You you mentioned your mother, and um, I wanted to just just touch in on on her legacy you know she's a a very famous activist and very charismatic person who who really um, inspired a lot of people how did she inspire you and what was it like for you you know coming up in in the in the household that you did well I wouldn't want to sugarcoat it you know Mm -hmm. I mean she was a very intense uh, driven person but she had a a passion for uh, for getting at what was true she had a she had a background as a researcher at the Library of Congress, where she had high level security clearance. So she spent a lot of time looking at and abstracting uh, top secret documents from the Atomic Energy Commission and others. So she she had the chops to dig into some of this material back in the day before you had Google. You know, mm. I can't even imagine the the difficulty of of doing this kind of research in the pre-internet era. You know, but she she knew how to focus, and she 
she knew the value of, of uh, getting your research and your sourcing right. And she had a strong partner in my father who was uh, actually kind of one of the, the old breed of Republicans. But he just he was uh, steadfast in his support of her because he knew that she was going to keep it uh, completely grounded in scientific literature and fact. So they were a team. And uh, some of the more striking things that she said was, you know, they, they're calling me a radical. They called her a radical, you know. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, we had this proposal, uh, you know, the, the nuclear industry as it was then proposed back in the 1970s was that we were going to be producing multi-ton quantities of bomb-grade nuclear material mm. and shipping it all over the world with the expectation that somehow that was going to be manageable or that we would somehow be able to to maintain our, uh, our open uh, constitutional uh, institutions in, in the light of almost certain... Uh, nuclear proliferation and nuclear terrorism, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and she was simply questioning whether that was a good idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she, was, she said, I'm the conservative around here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and she was right. Those of us that, that are, appreciate the, the absolute primacy of, of the life support system of the planet... Mm-hmm. You know, that is the conservative rock bottom position. Yeah. Because, because she said the minimum morality, the minimum morality of any age, especially now in this technological era, is to pass along the planetary life support system in as much an intact form as we can. It seems so obvious, doesn't it? It does seem obvious. Like, do I really have to say that? Yeah. Um, but. Um, but we do have to keep saying here, it. Yeah, here we are. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, thank you for sharing. Well, I so appreciate the work that you do, and uh, you know, in the last last year, we've been on a couple of events and just been so inspired and energized by your. Um, by your presentations and your clarity of vision and um, the way that you can communicate things um, in a very tangible, articulate way and keep people up to speed. And, you know, your dedication is amazing. The The Climate Crack of the Week video series is amazing. Love, love all the content that you produce online. And um, just one more question here. You know, uh, music is a big part of the Clean Water Campaign and title track and um, and a part of everyone's lives um so i'm curious for you what are your desert island albums like if you if if you had to distill it down what are the bare essentials for you musically speaking that's a tough one because uh shoot uh i'm kind of an old folky but Mm -hmm. but in the same sense that you know for those of us that go to the wheatland festival mm-hmm. and sort of understand music in that sort of universal context that they understand it there you know mm-hmm. grassroots universal music but i i guess you know if i 
my my desert island uh, music would include a lot of uh, a lot of roots uh, american music and and celtic mm-hmm. certainly of various flavors and uh, but i'm always you know i'm always learning and i'm always finding new uh, new forms that speak to me you know so i would hope that uh, if i do end up on a desert island that i've got a a, a spotify account awesome well thank you so much for your time peter keep up the good work oh and thank you Uh, your work also is absolutely critical and and vital because you give us uh, the emotional uh, food that we need and the intellectual uh, food and sustenance as well so please keep it up thank you you got it State of Water is powered by the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan. This campaign represents an opportunity to help place clean water issues front and center by partnering with environmental organizations across the state, by educating voters, and by urging every candidate running for public office to make a strong stand on critical issues affecting Michigan's waters. Using storytelling and music events across the state to amplify the groundswell of public support for clean water issues, this campaign is driven by Michiganders from all walks of life who share a similar priority, protection of our water. Both State of Water and the Clean Water Campaign are programs of the Michigan-based nonprofit Title Track. Their mission engaging creative practice to build resilient social ecological systems that support clean water, racial equity, and youth empowerment. Thanks for tuning in. Stay safe, stay engaged, and we'll see you on Wednesday. Don't miss an episode. Tune in next time.